0: We turn in God's Word tonight the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be at chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is the second of our messages uh, from these particular articles of the Belgic Confession dealing with the church. A couple of Lord's Days ago, we talked about the preeminence of Christ that Scripture gives that he is the highest, the ruler, he is over all, but we often see that rejected in the world and in our society. So Debray and the Belgic Confession made sure to note the headship of Jesus Christ over the church, setting for us, uh, as we did, the historical context as to why Debray had to bring up this matter of the church in the historical world of 1560 and what was happening and transpiring. But also the fact that God's word illustrates for us that passage from Colossians. He is the head of the body and so the church is known as the body of Christ. Now there's many illustrations that the Bible uses uh, to give to us what the church is. It is the pillar, the foundation of the truth. Uh, Many other passages, we could have salt of the earth, light of the world, uh, also reflect that which the church is. But perhaps the one that is predominant in Scripture, the one that perhaps is given the the most uh, words and pages on the pages of Scripture, is the illustration that the church is a body. And we talked about the fact two Sundays ago that that as that, when you think about a body, a body is defined It's not an amoeba, it's not ever moving and oozing and so on. It is defined. A body has definite limits to it, as well as definition to it. The body is made up of many parts that all function within the body, but in that passage and in that section uh, from Colossians, we were noting specifically that the church as a body has a head. The head is Christ, not the Pope. He's not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. That was the point that Paul is making to to the church of Colossae as well. Now, as we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to carry on that illustration of the church as a body from perhaps the most famous passage dealing with that here in 1 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse 12. I do not belong to the body that would not make it any longer less a part of the body and if an ear should say because I am not an eye I do not belong to the body that would not make it any less a part of the body if the whole body were an eye where would the sense of hearing be if the whole body were an ear where would the sense of sm- where would be the sense of smell but as it is God arranged the members of the body each one of them as he chose If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you, nor can the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which are more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, given greater honor to the part that lacked it, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffer, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of scripture that you've given to us. We thank you that each member is important in the body of Christ. And thank you for your care for the body, for the church. We ask that you'll be with Pastor Bob as he explains this scripture to us. We ask us in Jesus' name, amen. I want to look at three things in regards to this picture, this illustration that the Holy Spirit gives to us in the word of the church. First of all, that the church is alive. Secondly, that the church is necessary. And thirdly, this whole issue of the church raises some questions that we need to face and look at. First of all, then, the church is alive. And the reason the church is alive is because the head is alive. So Now we have to go back and And merge into this, the Colossians passage, where Christ is the head of the body. Why is the body, why is the church alive? Because the head is alive. Paul, in a few chapters from this, is going to give to us the great exhortation and teaching on the resurrection of Christ. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. The whole thing is hopeless. The whole thing is pointless. If Christ has not been raised, if the head is not alive, if the head is dead, then the body is dead as well. But you see, what Paul is aiming at here, what Paul is is driving at in the larger context of Corinthians is to point out to us the fact that Christ is alive because he is the head of the church. He was the one who has been raised from the dead. And so once again, as Paul points out in that passage in Corinthians, this becomes one of those pivotal points of doctrine that you can't can't cave in on. you, You can't change. You can't alter. You can't fuzz over. Either Christ raised from the dead or Christ didn't. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then he is still dead. If Christ did rise from the dead, then he is alive and he is the living head of the church. But there's something else that points that out to us, and that's the ascension of Christ. Because Christ is the one who has ascended, Christ is the one who has taken a position. That was Paul's point in Colossians chapter 1, that Christ has this position of preeminence. Why? Because he has ascended. He has ascended to glory. There he rules, there he reigns. He is the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords. He is the preeminent one over all things, over all creation, over all human beings, and, as Paul points out there, over the church. So because Christ is alive, because the head is alive, the church is alive, because he has ascended. So not only does his resurrection prove this point, So does his ascension. The two are tied together. But also, the fact that Christ has gifted the church. That one of the things we read about in the ascension of Christ, in in the psalm that relates to this, is the fact that Christ, in his ascension, has given gifts to believers. And the gift that he gives is the Spirit. And the spirit is not dead, the spirit is alive. So because Christ is alive, because Christ has ascended, because Christ is still at work, because Christ has given to the church his spirit, not only is the head alive, but so is the body. Even though sometimes we talk about the deadness of the church, That can never be true. The church, by definition, can only be alive. The church can never be dead. Now, you you can have dead worship services in the sense that there's no life in them. You, You can have a church that has given up on the truth of God's word, and therefore it is dead in that sense. But the church, the body of Christ, can never be dead. Why? Because we are forever connected to the head. And the head is alive. That is Christ. It's rather interesting in all of this discussion when one thinks about it and relates to it, as, as we will later on, in the fact that in a, when, you, when you take away Christ as the head of the church and insert a human being, such as the Roman Catholics do with the Pope, Understand what then happens. The only reason that person can be considered the head of the church is that somebody else must be thought of as dead. And it's interesting how frequently in Roman Catholic artistic work, how is Christ depicted? Dead. He's on a cross. See, that that, that picture means something, that conveys something. It conveys the idea that there is a certain deadness there, but there is an aliveness in our Papa, in the Pope. That which, obviously, Debray in the Belgic Confession is arguing against because of this very scripture. Christ is the head. And so the body is alive. The body is alive because we are alive Keep your finger here at 1 Corinthians 12. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Follow along as I read the first 10 verses of of Ephesians 2 and just note all the words, all all the statements that, that leave us with the indication that the church is alive. Now, remember, when Paul writes this, for example, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Paul's not talking to individuals. The you there is referencing what? The church at Ephesus. So he's addressing the church. The you is the church. And you, the church, the body of Christ, were dead. "...in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature of children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive made us made the church alive in Christ the body of Christ is alive the church of the living God is alive by grace you have been saved raised up with him notice that that theme of resurrection again just as Christ has been raised so has the church been raised As the head was raised, so was the body. Christ, when he rose from the grave, didn't have just his head walking around, floating through the air, meeting with the disciples and the 500 witnesses. It was not only his head, it was his body for a purpose. To show that not only he as the head was alive, but that we as the body were alive as well. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. There's the ascension. That's where we are. Why are we alive? Because we are seated with Christ... ...in the heavenly places. So that in the coming ages... ...He might show the immeasurable richness... ...of His grace and kindness towards us... ...in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This not your own doing... ...it is the gift of God. Not a result of works... ...so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship... ...created in Christ Jesus... Four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice that verbiage, that we are alive, we are working, we are at work serving the living and true God. The body is alive. We have to understand that, that the church is a living institution. Because it is the body of Christ. And we are so connected to Christ that His life, His living, is our living. But not only that, Christ has also given to us the Spirit that He poured out upon Pentecost so that we are referred to as the temples of the Holy Spirit. Peter, in using that illustration in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, refers to the church as living stones. We are the living temples. We are the body of Christ. And we are alive. Understand that. Get the point at which Paul is driving at here, in which the Holy Spirit is desiring us to come to. We sang this morning, 455, and can it be, right? That, there's that one verse, right? Alive in Him, my living head. There's the truth presented to us in a hymn. We sing it. Yes, we are alive. Who is alive? The church, the body of Christ. Secondly then, if the body of Christ is alive, then the church is absolutely necessary. If the way to be connected to Christ Is through the body. Christ doesn't, as it were, you see, take off his head and go over here and, oh, now my head is on this part, now my head is on this part. There is but one body. There is but one church of Jesus Christ. Those who are gathered from all tribes, all nations, all peoples. That's what Psalm 87, our call to worship, was about. Oh, how God loves Zion. He's not talking about so much about the city of Jerusalem. He's talking about the church, the people of God. He loves the people of God. And where are they from? They're from all over the world. And what constitutes those who are part of that church? Those who have been born again in church. Now the church doesn't grant salvation. Only God grants that gift of faith. But is the church is the means by which that is conveyed. It is God's choosing that he uses the church as the instrument through which the gospel is preached and proclaimed. And it is through that proclamation of the gospel that God chooses to use his spirit to work in the hearts of individuals. To bring them out of that darkness into that marvelous light. the church is necessary if we are Christ then his body you cannot be Christ without being a part of his body there are no arms running around in this world Who can claim, I'm Christ. No, they have no head. The only way to be a part of Christ is to be a part of Christ's body. To be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. And once again, let me underscore the fact that, because some of you perhaps are rereading Uh, the, the article 28 right now, and you're thinking about, well, does that mean I have to be Orthodox Presbyterian? Did Debray mean you had to be a member of his congregation? No. That word there does not, it means the body of Christ. It means apart from the body of Christ, there is no salvation. You cannot be saved if you are not part of Christ's body. Because it is the body of Christ that is alive because of Christ who is alive, who is the head. Apart from him, we are dead. So if we're Christ, then his body. We can't function as part of the body apart from the head. And when you say, well, What what exactly does that mean? Well, let's go back again to the New Testament. When Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, when he's writing to the church at Colossa, when he's writing to the church at Philippi, when he's writing to the churches of Galatia, when he's writing to the church of Corinth, the passage we read, what is the church to whom he is writing? What is that? Is that some undefinable organization out there? Who who got this letter of the Corinthians? Who got that? A local church body. A group of people who by faith had embraced Jesus Christ are those who received The letter to the church at Corinth. See, in the eyes of the New Testament, all church is local. That's the way the New Testament understands it. The the New Testament does, does not understand this in terms of the dynamics so true in our world today and in our true society today. I'm a Christian, I just don't want to join a church. The New Testament knows of no such thing. The New Testament knows of no such Christian. The only Christians the New Testament knows of are those who are members of the body of Christ in a local congregation. See, what that article that Debray is writing about in 28 is is it's written to the people who are fleeing the church because they're scared for their lives. They simply want to live in their little house, do their own devotions, read their own word, but they don't want to go to church because if they go to church, they're going to die possibly. And Debray is saying, no. No. Unless you are willing... To be a part of a local congregation. The body of Christ. There is no salvation apart from it. Now the brain knows just as we know that the church doesn't grant salvation. It's not because you're a member of the church you're saved. You're a member of the church because you are saved. That's the point he's making. That every true believer would have a desire to be connected to the body of Christ. Let me put it another way. No body, no life. If I were by accident tomorrow to sever my four fingers... And I was unable to recover them from the dumpster or landfill in which they were thrown. Will those four fingers live? The answer is no. They're going to die. Why? Because they're not connected to my body. That's Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 12. You can't separate yourself from the body of Christ and remain alive. You have the necessity of needing other believers, other members. It is the act of ultimate pride to be able to say, I don't need that which God has provided. I don't need the body of Christ. I can be a Christian on my own. That is a sign of ultimate pride. And you see, knowing Scripture as we do, it is pride that is the source of our separation between ourselves and God from the beginning. So is Debray correct when he says this causes us to be outside of the life in Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. Outside of the body of Christ, there is no life. Now, Of course, Debray is not dealing with various circumstances that it may arrive in people's lives. Those people who at the last moment of their life give themselves to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They didn't have an opportunity to appear before elders. They didn't have an opportunity to profess their faith. They didn't have an opportunity to join a local congregation. Debray is not dealing with that, but neither are you and I. And neither is the vast majority of the human society. One only has to think of the thief upon the cross. But there again we have a reminder, do we not, of the fact that this is pre-Pentecost. Everyone else who is converted is always urged to be a part of the body of Christ. What do you see taking place at Pentecost? What should we do? Repent and be baptized. They repent and are baptized. Then what? Then they start meeting together. They start worshiping together. They start communing together. They start studying God's word. They start praying together. What have they become? They've become a church. Outside of Christ, you see, there is no salvation. And if the church is defined as the body of Christ, then it would also be true to say, outside of the church, there is no salvation. So let me further explain one other thing that you find in Article 28, because perhaps it raises some consternation. You see, he speaks about the fact that we should separate from those who do not belong to the church. See that line? It is the duty of all believers, according to the word of God, to separate themselves from all who do not belong to the church and to join themselves to this congregation. Not the first reformed church of the lowlands of Belgium, but this congregation, the church of Jesus Christ. Now, why does he say that? Because you have a group of these people, these Anabaptists, who have revolted against all church ecclesiastical structure and everything. They're the folks who are trying to live their Christian lives, quote-unquote, by themselves. And Debray's words are directed towards them. You need to separate yourselves from the rest of those Anabaptists, and you need to get yourself into a local body of Christ. He's not talking about the fact that, well, can't I talk to my non-Christian co-worker about the gospel? That's not what he's talking about. He's saying you need to separate yourselves from those who think there is no purpose, no function to the church of Jesus Christ. Don't join in that alliance. Don't join with that group of free thinkers. You have to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ as the head of the church. And apart from that, there can be no salvation. Apart from Christ. We cannot be saved. Thirdly then, this raises some questions. Question number one that it raises. Are you part of a body? Are you part of the visible expression of the body of Christ in this world? Are you a member, a confessing member Of the church, the body of Jesus Christ. Remember, I can't be a cut off hand over here in the corner and say, well, I'm connected to Christ. And, you know, this, this kind of strange thing where I'm not connected to any other Christian in any way, shape or form. But I am connected to Christ. Now, the the way the scriptures picture this is if I want to be connected to Christ, then I've got to be a finger, I've got to be a hand, I've got to be an elbow, I've got to be a knee, I've got to be a foot, I've got to be some part of the body of Christ. So are you? Are you part of the body of Christ? Not have you gone through the formal exercises and so on, but are you... A confessing member of Christ's body. Not a baptized member. Oh, that makes you a part of the visible church under the terms of the covenant. It makes you part of the body in until you reach an age of discernment when you have to appropriate for yourself those promises that are made to you in your baptism. And if you don't appropriate for yourself those, even though you're able to discern it, then you're not part of the body of Christ. If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. This is not easy. This is, this is, this is, not, this is not one of those messages, oh, everything's so wonderful. No, no, this is hard. This is difficult. We all deal with circumstances in our lives. And there are those in our world and in our society who refuse. Who refuse. They'll even take this sermon if it were dispensed on the web. It's one of the reasons I don't do it. Okay? Because you get tons of hate mail. How dare you say that? How dare you say those things? Why? Well... Some people are simply unwilling to be submissive to authority. They don't want the elders of the church telling them that how they are living is wrong. They don't want to come under the discipline of the church. And so they think, well, you know, if I'm not part of the church, they can't do anything about me. I'll go to church, I'll collect all the freebies, all the goodies. I'll enjoy the singing. When I'm sick, they'll pray for me. I'll get all this stuff. But you see, I don't have to submit to authority. Now tell me, my friends, who does that sound like but perhaps your spoiled teenager? They want all the goodies, but they don't want to live by the curfew rule. They want all the goodies, but they don't want any of the responsibilities that come with living in the home. They want you to pay the tuition bill, but boy, they're not going to come to church. That's what we've become in our world and in our society in this generation. We've become a bunch of people who are simply unwilling to be submissive to authority. My friends, if you're not as submissive to the authority of Christ, then what are you? Because the authority of Christ is seen and demonstrated by elders in a local church. That's the way it's conveyed. And if you're unwilling to be submissive to elders of a local church, then what are you really saying? I really don't want the authority of Christ over my life. I want to do what I want, I want to think what I want. I do not want to submit. People don't want to be held accountable. You know, if I just visit, then nobody can say anything when I'm not there three weeks in a row. Nobody's going to make me do anything. I don't have to serve in any way. It's easy. I can come and go because I'm unwilling to be an active member of the body of Christ. First, 2 Timothy 3.7, Paul writes to Timothy about those people who are ever learning, ever gaining understanding, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Boy, does that describe a lot of these people. Man, they know all sorts of stuff. But the one thing they don't know is how to submit to Christ and to the authority of Christ. Are you part? The body of Christ. My second question is this Are you willing to die? See, when Debray wrote this article, let me give you the historical context of what is going on. This is by Dr. Ritterbarger from the church out there in California, the URC church. And now we consider Article 28 and the obligations of the members of the church. And consider the fact that these articles on the church were written in a period of time much different than our own. As we have seen, Guido de Bray composed these articles in direct response to the Roman church shortly after the canons and decrees of the Consul of Trent had been promulgated as a direct response to Protestantism. Given the marriage between church and state typical of late medieval Europe, The actions taken by the Holy Roman Empire against Protestants were almost always done in concert with the church. If the Roman church regarded Protestantism as a threat to the well-being of the church, then the empire supplied the military might to intercede. It was during this time that Spanish authorities, under the command of Habsburg King Philip II and his prime henchman, the Duke of Alva, Put so many reformed Christians to death that church historian Philip Schaff can lament, the number of martyrs exceeds that of any other Protestant church during the 16th century. And perhaps that of the whole primitive church under the Roman Empire. Understand what he's saying. More people die in the Netherlands for being reformed. Then died under the hand of all those Roman emperors. This explains why de Bray's pointed efforts to remind Christians of the necessity of joining a local church, even though to do so might put one in direct conflict with the governing authorities. Thus, Debray must not only summarize the biblical teaching regarding the church and then refute the erroneous view that the Roman church is the body of Christ with whom all Christians must unite if they are to be saved. See, there's the distinction. Rome says you must be Roman Catholic in order to be saved. You cannot be saved outside of the Roman Catholic church. Well, that's not what Debray is saying. Debray is saying you can't be saved outside of the church. Not a particular denomination. The Bray is leaving the door open for people for all nations, all tribes, all races. Different denominations. But the Roman Catholic Church, you see, closes that door and says, Outside of us, outside of the Roman Catholic Church, there is no salvation. So Debray goes into great length. He must also make the case that Spanish authorities must not confuse the Roman churches with the Anabaptists, like those who took over the city of Munster and scandalized Protestantism for generations to come. In one sense, the articles in our confession dealing with the church are in many ways a plea to Philip II for toleration, since at least 10% of the Dutch population had reform sympathies at this time. Given the horrific persecutions that Reformed Christians faced throughout this entire period, many people were undoubtedly afraid to express these sympathies publicly, since joining the church meant they might face the sword from the likes of Philip II or the Duke of Avila. The Bray must convince such people that their faith in Christ must come to public expression. There is no such thing as a secret Christian even in times of persecution. Therefore, we must keep this historical situation in mind when we work through these articles. Our situation is completely different. We live in a land of peace and relative religious liberty. Very likely, we will not be arrested by government officials acting on orders of the Roman Catholic Church and put to death for daring to celebrate the Lord's Supper without the Roman Church's blessing, as was the author of the Belgian. Confession. See, Debray did not write these words without understanding their significance. He knew Rome would not be happy. And he dies for it. Are you willing to die for being a member of the body of Christ? This is a Article said, we probably won't face that, but my friends, there are 30 pastors heading away from the Murph headquarters in Kenya who most likely are going to face that reality. We have brothers and sisters in Christ today who have faced that reality. Would we? But are you willing to die for the church? Are you willing to give up For the sake of the church, that which you think is important, that which you think is necessary, are you willing to die, put to death your own selfishness for the sake of the church? Are you willing to do something for the church? Are you willing to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you willing to die? But then again, this whole thing raises the question. This church that Debray speaks of, this church that is the body of Christ, That the Bible speaks of. What is that? How do we know. If a church is truly. The church of Jesus Christ. But that's another question. For another sermon. For tonight. We stop. We thank God. Next Lord's Day. We come to this table. We're not going to die because we come to this table because of persecution. But this table is a reminder as well that we are the body of Christ. This is what the New Testament church did. It meant together. It broke bread. It means not only in terms of fellowship. It also means they came together to this table. It was a significant event for the church because they saw themselves at this table as the body of Christ united together in their living head. Let each one of us prayerfully consider our participation next Lord's Day to the glory of Jesus Christ. God's people say, amen. Father, we do thank you for your gift. That you have given of the church. This is the means by which. You allow Christ to be seen in this world. Father may we live in such a way. That we are the visible evidence this week. Of the body of Christ. Oh how we thank you. Father for giving us. A redeemer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our living head. And we thank you. For giving us your spirit until that work, till that work of the church of Jesus Christ here on earth is finished and completed. Father, may we always live to bring glory to Christ. In whose name we pray and God's people say, Amen.